Hi, cats and kittens. In order to support our show, we'll need the help of some great advertisers. And in order to find great advertisers, we'll need to learn a little bit more about you. So please go to podsurvey.com stroke smartest and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you a little bit better. That way, we can show advertisers how great our listeners are. Plus, once you've completed the survey, you can choose to enter a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply again. That's podsurvey.com slash smartest. Podsurvey.com slash smartest. S-M-A-R-T-E-S-T. Thanks for your help. Hooray, hurrah. Once again, the smartest man in the world, Proofcast, takes to the ether from the Porpoise of Fruititude, located somewhere in Lower California. Me amo Gregorio Asus Ordinez. Mi esposa es Jennifer. Hello. That's Billy Porter, the fabulous Billy Porter, from a record that he put together called Billy Porter Presents The Soul of Richard Rogers, where he takes a bunch of Richard Rogers songs and with a bunch of uh, collaborators and duettists, uh, um, rethinks and reimagines um, the genius of uh, Richard Rogers' music. Richard Rogers, of course, wrote with both um, Lorenz Hart and the unbelievable lyricist Oscar Hammerstein II, who was um, a humanist of the highest caliber. But it is Black History Month, and so we'll talk about Billy Porter um, and his outfit last night at the Oscars. They had him on the red carpet, and he wore... um, well, why don't you t- why don't you tell us about it? It was a t- it was a tuxedo it was, gown. It was, yes, it was a tuxedo ball gown with uh, an enormous uh, uh, skirt. It uh, was just absolutely fabulous, and of course, he can carry it off. He can carry off all the looks. Um, it was designed by Christian Siriano, but it was a tribute to uh, the late Hector Extravaganza, who uh, was a consultant on the show Pose, and was uh, the godfather of the New York ballroom scene. And you, uh, you, you were talking about him just a few weeks ago yes. on the show. he passed away in December uh, at a very young age. Um, and you can see his fabulousness in the documentary Paris is Burning. The outfit was a tribute to... Um... He had worn that at the balls, and I'm sure he had made it himself. When his, his gown was a netting at the at the base and, and the men's tux at the top. If you go online, um, you can see them side by side, uh, the picture of Hector Extravaganza and the picture of Billy Porter. Billy Porter was also sensational on the carpet as a reporter. His energy, his focus. He was his, so prepared. His knowledge of history. We saw him interview um, uh, Michelle Yeoh. And Michelle Yeoh is not anybody's idea of a laugh a minute. She seems like a very serious actress. Um, and he got her Laughing. so... Yeah, he... He flattered her, he cajoled her, he joked with her, and next thing you know, she was laughing and doing impressions and jokes mm-hmm, and stuff. Mm-hmm. Glenn Close, he had, uh, Glenn Close was, like you could tell, completely bedazzled by his glamour. <laughs> and um, then you had Representative John Lewis on, and John Lewis was there to give out. Oh, and what he said to him was lovely. Yeah. John Lewis was talking about getting organized, never getting down and out. He said, for those of us who need a word of hope, for those of us who need a little encouragement right now, because things seem so the way they are. And John Lewis said, you've got to organize. You've got to show up. And Billy Porter said to him, the price of liberty is eternal vigilance, which is someone we, we were always taught mm-hmm, as children mm-hmm. about white people patriotism. And to see them get up there and do that. Well, it's like what Coretta Scott King said that you have to fight for democracy every generation. Uh-huh. 
it doesn't get easier. It doesn't get better. And um, it, it, it's a very difficult long climb. There's no end to it. It mm-hmm. has to be fought for and won again and again and again. Because there's always going to be some... Um, some Nazi to mess things up and yeah, some we're, fascist. We're getting a frosty bite of that now. Aren't we, Jess? But I'm full of hope in my heart because not only did John Lewis get a gigantic um, standing o, o, you know, o, ovation at the Oscars, as well he should, being a civil rights hero. And if you don't know who John Lewis is, he's a representative from Georgia. Uh, uh, he's in the Congress. He has been for ages. He marched... Uh, uh, with Dr. King, of course, in the 60s. He was also at the March for Jobs and Freedom, the very famous one, the I Have a Dream 1963 speech that Kennedy watched on TV with RFK and then brought um, MLK over to the White House. Um, Bayard Rustin was there. Uh, Josephine Baker spoke at that. John Lewis spoke on the day. Mm-hmm. Um, all the famous figures from the civil rights movement were there. It's a giant day in American history two years later. Because of that, because of the pressure they put on, because of the beating that, in part, because of the beating that he took at the Edmund Pettus Bridge, because of the countless um, sacrifices that everyone in the Civil Rights Movement made, the Civil Rights Act was passed in 1965, and LBJ signed it. And then, of course, it was basically gutted a couple of years ago by the Roberts Court, when Roberts decided that uh, prejudice no longer existed. And then, subsequent to that, we've seen... What's happened? So here we are. Uh, yeah, he's he's living history, and he's uh, the best part of our nature. And everyone wants to be near him when they can get a chance. No question. And this Oscars was uh, the usual mixture of uh, um, maudlin corporate nonsense, um, uh, commercial filmmaking, and then of and disappointment. Well, disappointments, <laughs> and then a lot of bright spots. Uh, I oh. wanted Glenn Close to win because I think after seven nominations, kind of like Peter O'Toole. Uh, or Richard Burton, or I don't know, Cary Grant, or uh, Alfred Hitchcock, maybe they deserve an Oscar too. <laughs> um, maybe Glenn Close deserves one Oscar in her long lifetime of amazing performances. She's also, and let me just throw this in. And she's very good in The Wife. Yeah, you've seen The Wife. I haven't seen it yet. Um, she's a great comedian. Yes. She's funny. And not only is she a good comedian, she's good at doing morbid comedy. Um, and believe it or not, she started with Up With People. She was a little Glennie Close. That's just hilarious. Well, she can sing and dance, is what right. I'm saying. The woman is a talented artist and <laughs> has had to put up with a world of bullshit. And as you were telling me about getting this picture of the wife made... Mm-hmm. It uh, took 14 years. But why? Because they couldn't find a, a male lead who would be uh, the second to her in a movie called The Wife. Mm-hmm. So How about those they apples? ended up with Swedish funding. They got Jonathan Price. Uh, the producer was a woman. The, it's based on a book by a woman. The adaptation was by a woman, uh, directed by a man. Um, she might be back next year, hopefully, if she uh, makes the movie version of the play uh, Sunset Boulevard. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's smashing. Yes. Well, I mean, we love Olivia, and she's a wonderful actor, and good for her. Congratulations. But, you know, G. Willikers, um, Glenn Close. And she I don't, dressed like an Oscar. She did. She wore a fabulous <laughs> golden gown. I don't think it's a pity Oscar um, at, at her age and where she is in her career. It's to, an overdue Oscar. Yeah. It's it's something that should have been, that should have been taken care of in the 90s, surely. Um and let's be on I'll be honest, you don't have to agree with me about this. Um, Meryl Streep is fabulous and all that jazz. Um, 
Glenn Close could have played a lot of those, uh, a lot of the kind of parts that she didn't get a chance Thank to you. play. Um, the Devil Wears Prada, for instance, comes to mind. Ooh, she would have been good. Um, Margaret Thatcher. Those mm-hmm. are two Meryl Streep roles that I kind of see Glenn Close playing better than her. And uh, I'm not, you know, I, Meryl Streep, don't come to my house. Don't don't <laughs> hunt me down. I've forgiven you for Mamma Mia. Oh, it's kind really? of. No, not really, not really. I can't forgive anyone for Mamma Mia. <laughs> I mean, I love Pierce Brosnan. Um, the idea of him singing is not. No. good to me it's no. it's it's everything that's wrong with movies um so the oscars had that there was that disappointment there was the disappointment of spike lee not winning best director and we were looking at the list of black oscar winners today which is uh short mm. and uh but the best he was not he was not nominated ever before for best director the this first is shocking right so he didn't win he won for best adapted screenplay it was his first oscar and it was his first oscar and he gave he and had, he jumped into samuel l jackson's art it was really adorable he wore he was dressed as a supervillain he wore a purple <laughs> outfit with a weird purple hat and gold tennis shoes um he gave a wonderful speech which uh, I'm going to quote a little bit from here. He also, before the Oscars, said the funniest GD thing in the entire world, which was, I'm snakebit. Anytime anybody's driving anybody, I lose, <laughs> which I thought was hilarious. Um, he didn't say anything about Orange 45, but Orange 45 lashed out at him this morning because, as you know, any intelligent, um, any, any prominent black people, whether they're LeBron James or uh, Representative Lee, or, or Representative Waters, or um, Spike Lee, it get, gets right in his throat. It, 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 because he has such a terrible, terrible, bigoted, um, racist heart, he can't stand um, to see uh, articulate black people do the powerful things that he can't do, mm-hmm. which is move people, which is um, inspire people, which is um, elate people with their feats of... Uh, liberty or sporting prowess or or uh, uh, filmmaking or uh, being the kind of fabulous Congress people, Representative Wilson, I mean, who he had a real go at, uh, uh, the one who wears the cowboy hat from Florida, and she's a smashing uh, congressperson. And of course, we have our own Maxine Waters here. Um, He's had a go at all of them. He impugns their looks. He impugns their intelligence. It's really bad. So he's... I'm going to read you what Spike said. The word today is irony. The date this month, February, happens to be the shortest month, with all times to be Black History Month. The year 2019, the year 1619, history, her story, 1619, 2019, 400 years. This is what Spike Lee said in his best adapted screenplay, Oscar-winning speech. 400 years, our ancestors were stolen from Mother Africa and brought to Jamestown, Virginia, enslaved. Our ancestors worked the land from can't see in the morning to can't see at night. My grandmother, who lived to be 100 years old, who was a Spelman College graduate, even though her mother was a slave. My grandmother, who saved 50 years of Social Security checks to put her first grandchild, she called me Spikey Poo. (laughs) She put me through Morehouse and NYU. And then he does a shout out to NYU. And this is what I thought was so wonderful and why his writing is so important. He's, as Jennifer always says to me, and it it doesn't work, it's never gotten through to me, but she said it to me for years. Clarity, clarity. Be clear about what you're trying to say and be clear about the message you're trying to put across. Ambiguity is wonderful, but not so much in stand-up comedy and not so much when you're giving a speech. That isn't to say you can't have nuance. Before the world tonight, I give praise to our ancestors who have built this country into what it is today along with the genocide of its native people. How's mm-hmm. that for a sentence at the Oscars? Mm-hmm. We all connect. He didn't say this with rancor and he was not angry. You know how 
the Patty Chayefsky white guy types of the world have always been angry that the Oscars got politicized. When the Oscars are the most political thing in the world, they are, in fact, a bastion of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They've not included women. No woman's ever won for best or won. Did Catherine Bigelow win for Hurt Locker? Uh, she won. Was it for Hurt Locker? Best director. She might be the yes. only woman to ever win. No black men have ever won best director. Um, no black woman ever, DuVernay, did not win for MLK. Nor was she even nominated this year for Wrinkle in Time. Let me continue. We all connect with our ancestors. We have love and wisdom regained. We will regain our humanity. It will be a powerful moment. We will regain our humanity, I think is where 45 was watching the show and started to get angry. He, he didn't like the slave part because he likes to deny that there was slavery. But we all know we will have love and wisdom regained. We will regain our humanity. Everybody knows what that means right now. He's speaking to the heart of the matter. He didn't have to go into a big thing and describe it. He's talking about the state of the American heart right now, um, the state of American humanity. There's a person um, with access to social media who is a, a Russian asset uh, at, the, uh, at, the, um, f- at the fronting an international crime syndicate, and that's who is supposed to be in the White House right now. And he's full of hate in his heart, and he lashes out at people. He never says anything positive. Regain our humanity is that that's when it started to get to him. It will be a powerful moment then. This is when, if it didn't get to him then, this is when 45 sat up uh, with the cheeseburger dangling. The 2020 presidential elections are around the corner. As soon as he heard that, he knew what that meant. Let's all mobilize. Let's all be on the right side of history. Make the moral choice between love versus hate. Let's do the right thing. You know, I had to get that in there. And then he <laughs> laughed and everybody laughed and it was a joke. Um, 45 wrote, uh, use his notes when doing his racist hit on your president. Now, for you to sit down and, and, and interpret something as a racist hit because he said, replace love with hate and do the right thing. Well, this is so the telltale heart. He, when he hears the right side of history, he knows that he's not there. Yeah. He's not on the right side of history. And the three things that he said, love, wisdom, uh, regain our humanity and be on the right side of history make the moral choice between love versus hate that was racist that was in 45's terrible churning um, hideous mechanized uh, whoring chirping uh, rusty mechanics uh, of a brain or what a semblance of a discordant you know uh, euthanized yeah the, the, the misfiring neurons the, the, the burned out ganglia, the, the, the overuse of speed, and um, I'm assuming a dazzling variety of stimulants in the 70s and 80s. Uh, never drinky. Well, the, the moral turpitude, it's just, there's no, there's nothing there. No, no. You could shine a light through one ear, uh, and there would just be the devil's horns coming out the other ear. I, I believe there are 64 uh, best directors, uh, Oscars for, for the director, and Catherine Bigelow is the only woman to have won. She won in 2009 for The Hurt Locker. Kitty Biggs is uh, one from of three San people. Carlos. Sorry. There's three people <laughs> in the world from San Carlos, the whitest place on earth. How white? Home of the Plain Yogurt Festival. San Carlos was so white. Our Catholic school is called St. Charles. St. Charles, me and St. Carlos, you guys. Um, it's all on the album. You can buy it. It's, uh, and by the way, if you buy our album, um, if you buy the album, uh, which is called The, the Resistance, uh, if you go to iTunes or you can go to my website and buy it, um, if you buy the vinyl copy that has my autograph on it, it's 25 clams and all 25 clams, including the postage and the packing, 
um, go to R-A-I-C-E-S, RACES, which is a legal organization that helps with humanitarian funds and with legal um, the legal process for um, immigrants in Texas. And I, and I assume all across the um, Southwest that are that are dealing with the um, insane incarceration and caging of children that's going on now. In any case, um, yeah, Catherine Bigelow, Dana Carvey, and me are from St. Carlos. Dana was at the Oscars last night. Catherine won an Oscar, and I watched the Oscars. That's the connection. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I don't, she went to St. Carlos High. Um, Dana, I think, went to Carmont. I went to San Carlos High, which isn't there anymore either. I think uh, Catherine Bigelow is more like my sister's era at San Carlos High. Where did Barry Bonds go? Barry Bonds went to a prep school called, um, I want to say he went to Bellarmine or Medigonda Serra. There's a couple fancy prep schools on the peninsula. And you don't, you don't. Did he grow up in San Carlos? Yeah, he grew up behind my cousin Donnie, who I hung out with the other night. <laughs> I saw my cousin Donnie in um, uh, Fort Collins, Colorado. He and his wife came out to the show. And um, we got to hang out after at least and chat and whatnot and do what we do. It was Colorado. You figure it out. And um, <laughs> so uh, Donnie lived up on Ralston and uh, Barry lived down the road from him. And the um, there's a, a hit job uh, book on your slugger, as as 45 would say, um, your slugger being Barry Bonds. Uh, one of the hit job books opens with a scene in San Carlos on Little League Day, which was a huge day. I've described it before and I, I won't go into graphic detail, but we were a baseball crazy town and Barry's only five years younger than me. So you have to understand we're almost in the same generation. He's like, what if I was a senior, he would have been in eighth grade kind of thing. Um, we had 10 million baseball leagues in a town with 20,000 people. And every, I played ball. I cried because I was a shitty ball player, but everyone played ball. And I mean the women too. The women all play ball. The At least men you weren't ball. on Barry's team because that might be kind of crushing, a little hectic. You mean when he takes you yard and then like <laughs> right. and just backflips like, around the bases, right? And and his father Bobby, the all star, <laughs> sitting in the stands, and Willie Mays is there because they're best friends with Willie Mays. Yeah, it's a little different. Uh, so he. Uh, in this crappy hit job book, it starts with um, they um, were like, they're having the parade, the Little League parade, which was a big deal. We all drove down uh, Laurel Street and everybody was in their truck and the kids and we all wore uniforms and we all had to line up. Even the instructional league kids who were too young to play in Little League. And they go, oh, it was a, uh, I can't remember, they get the name of the park wrong. They like, it's somebody, you know, Spasha Park or something. And it's like, it's Burton Park. Okay, I grew up in fucking San Carlos, and don't even fucking start with me. So from the get-go, you knew. Well, well, really? You can't get that detail right? You can't even go to San Carlos or call someone in San Carlos and go, you know... I have uh, never understood why he's a villain. I mean, he's... Really? He... His greatest crime is um, using the system that the owner set up where there was no illegality involved with the PEDs that people were taking. Weren't they pretty much insisting... I think so. After the 97 season, when Sosa and McGuire went crazy and hit all them homers, he decided to bulk up. Until then, he wasn't a giant, you know, physical specimen. He was a big guy, and he was really fast. And, of course, he'd already had a Hall of Fame career before that. He'd already won, like, three MVPs by that point. And then he won, like, four more. What was the the day at the at the park when the crowd, as only San Francisco will do? You and I were at a postseason game, and they had... MasterCard's greatest moments of baseball as voted on by the public, which meant somebody went to a crap website and hit the same thing a thousand times, which is what all those things are. The greatest moment was Jackie appearing on the field, which is a really weird 
moment because it's um, it's it's the greatest moment in baseball history, obviously, but it's also the saddest moment. Like, Mm -hmm. really, we had to wait till 1947. And even then, as our friend Warren Thomas used to say, we're finally letting in a Negro play. Please do not shoot him. We might hit a tater. So, (laughs) I mean, it's really that simple. Like, really, really? So one of the other greatest moments was Mark McGuire breaking the record of Babe Ruth. And they brought Mark McGuire out on the field, who played in Oakland, by the way. But it was hilarious because the crowd just started booing him and and screaming, Barry, 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 Barry. the whole. They ruined his ovation. I mean, he didn't get a hand. He didn't get a hand. The crowd was churly, churlish. And if you recall, Pete Rose got dispensation to be on the field because the <laughs> other greatest moment voted by the fans was him breaking Ty Cobb, that miserable old racist son of a bitch's uh, base hit record. And so the curtain came down and Pete Rose walked out on the field and the San Francisco crowd stood <laughs> for 10 minutes for it's this so, villain. So perverse. <laughs> it was great. It was very San Francisco. And we were just high-fiving because <laughs> poor Mark McGuire, he was from Oakland. He's a good ball player. He should probably be in the Hall of Fame. I mean, he was no Barry, but he was quite a good hitter. And But that's the thing. It, whatever substances doesn't make you Barry Bonds. Barry Bonds practiced harder than any ball player that ever played. Um, you know, as George Will once said, um, when you call black ball players natural athletes, you can hear the racism in that. I'm misquoting him, but I'm paraphrasing him because I want to make a point here. Willie Mays was often described as having natural talent, whereas other white ball players so were described vile. as being diligent, like Stan Musial or whatever. And the truth is, And George Will said it, much to his credit, and I don't agree with George Will about anything before we go any further. (laughs) George Will said, much to his credit, hardest working ball player you ever saw. Willie Mays would take a pitch in the first inning and clock it and then come back in the seventh inning knowing that the pitcher thought he fooled him with the pitch in the first inning and hit that for a tater. Like he threw him an inside breaking ball or some off-speed shit. He'd watch it. And, oh, I can't hit that. Or even miss it swing at it and miss and then later hit it for a homer because I already timed that crappy pitch that you fucking threw Mm -hmm. and that's how Willie Mays played he hit his mitt twice if he thought he had the ball sometimes in games when he didn't have the ball and he was chasing a fly he'd hit his mitt twice knowing that it would stop the runners the runners watched Willie Mays to see if he was going to go like that because he was that good so they would stop where they were and go back to their base and then the ball would go over his head and everybody would go we could have taken another base he didn't do it a lot because you couldn't abuse that one but he did do it Barry Bonds in the spring we saw an interview with him years ago Jennifer and I were watching on ESPN maybe even and they said do you need any time to get warmed up in March because now it's the day we're recording this is the 26th pitchers and catchers and we've already played a few exhibition games inter-squad stuff and whatnot. And he said, no, I'm already in shape. He goes, the entire off-season I'm working out. I, from the moment I finish, I don't go to banquets. You know, I think he took a couple weeks off or whatever. I, but a week off to Barry Bonds Now was, he's into cycling. Right, I was going to say, meant riding a bike. Because it helped them. Or hitting the weight room. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, he never drank he never his stopped. He never stopped. He never no, stopped. His father was a terrible, terrible alcoholic who died of lung cancer and um, was a superb athlete. As I've often said, I thought his dad was a better base runner than him and, and a better outfielder. How does that grab you? But he wasn't a better ball player than Barry. Barry was, Barry was Willie Mays and Bobby Bonds, you know. Right, it was exciting. His talent. And uh, so uh, he said, first of all, I'm in shape. So no, I don't need a month to lose 10 pounds. I'm already way game fit. He said, in the off season, I don't pick up a bat. When I start to 
think about batting again after the season's over. The first two weeks, I wear a glove on my right hand, a fielding glove, stand at the plate and have my dad throw me batting practice and I just measure where the pitches are. Wow. So he would just stand there playing batter as a defensive position. In other words, with a glove on, and he'd say, throw me a curveball, dad, throw me a fastball, throw me a breaker, throw me a slider, down and in, whatever, up and out. And he'd catch it and go, that's where the ball's going, that's where the ball's going, that's the motion of the ball. Ted Williams, who was the greatest hitter of all time in a lot of ways, and made an absolute bloody science out of hitting. When he spoke to Tony Gwynn, Tony Gwynn was, was already a 350 hitter. Tony Gwynn hit 388 the next season after he conferred with Ted Williams. His average went up to a Ted Williams gaudy average because Ted Williams always talked about the, the ball inside. If you can take away the inside of the plate from the pitcher and tag that ball, you're going to hit 350. And Barry did. Barry took the inside of the plate away. He hit balls for home runs that were foul balls for anyone else because it was so too close to hit. He also choked up and whatnot. So I don't want to hear about um, all the bad things. He was surly to reporters. White reporters. White reporters? Yeah. White reporters did not dig that he had a Barca lounger. He had a Barca lounger and a TV. That's hilarious. <laughs> he had a Barca lounger and a TV at his Why locker. not? Why not? Babe Ruth used to call women from the clubhouse and demand that they have sex with him before he would meet them. I mean, I don't know what we're talking about here. The, the, you're, is baseball some sort of church going Ted in? Ted Williams wasn't easygoing, and neither was Joe DiMaggio. Ted Williams was booed in every ballpark. One writer described the reception Ted Williams got everywhere except Boston his whole career as the wind blowing through the trees. That was the noise the crowd made when Ted came to bat. Ooh, like that. And when Barry played, you remembered, they would boo everywhere. And then by the I was in a game with Warren, and we watched him. He hit. I said, let's just watch Barry the whole game, and we did. We sat in left field. So we watched him when he played left, and then we, when they batted, we watched the team. But we watched only Barry. I said, let's not watch the game. Let's just watch Barry all the time. So we did for a whole game. And they were booing him and cursing him. And the left field area at Dodger Stadium is awesome because a lot of Latin fans sit out there and they know everything. They know where you went to high school. They know your mother's <laughs> boyfriend. And they, they know what to say. And they bring up the dozens. It's all about the dozens out there. They, they'll say mean shit. He was being reviled. The air was purple with epithet and, and cursing in Spanish and English. And he hit a tater right around the second or third inning. And that quieted them down a little bit. <laughs> then he made a play, an outfield play. And by the way, he didn't like adopt the I'm ready stance all the time. He had a casual air, as you recall. Sometimes the glove like this on the shoulder while he was standing there. But he was always focused. Then about the five, fifth or sixth inning, um, a ball got hit to him for the last out of the game, uh, inning. And he ran over to the left field stands, which are on field level, a Dodger. And everyone could see him do it. And a little girl... A little girl in a Dodger jersey handed her the ball. Handed, didn't throw it. Handed that, it to that's her. That's cool. And then he didn't stay or anything. He just ran away. And all the guys yeah, in my section. Yeah, that made them. <laughs> all the guys <laughs> in my section. They had to reconsider didn't make this, their vitriol. This, this. Uh-huh, yeah. Uh-huh. And I said to Warren, did you see what he did today? That's diplomacy. And Warren was like, he went from being booed to them applauding mm-hmm. him. And I said, he had to do that every night in his career for 22 years. Right? Especially the last 15 years. Every night he had to do that. And after he got big and broke McGuire's record, he was a villain, right? To the to the white. I still have people call me and write me and argue with me about I hate that. I know. What are you going to do? What about the Oscars? Um, so, the, here's the best part of the Oscars. <laughs> um, 
Uh, Spike Lee won for Best Adopted Screenplay, which he shares with several people. I wanted him to win Best Director. I know he wasn't nominated, but... We talked about Barry Jenkins. Barry Jenkins, his film should have been Best Picture. The Best Picture of the Year, in my opinion, and I didn't see them all, I didn't see The Wife, was um, If Beale Street Could Talk. Oh my God, it was so beautiful. It had the sensitivity. Masha Ali, of course... uh, Good for him. Two Oscars in three years, which is just sensational. Right, and then as someone said, that he, he went home to see the season finale of True Detective, right. which to, he stars in. Right, he's on fire. <laughs> and quite right, he's a marvelous actor. In Moonlight, he was... Oh, I love that film. Just smashing as the genial drug dealer. Mm-hmm. But Barry Jenkins, he slows it down, and he gives you those those close-ups and those uh, those tight shots of two people having this communion and uh, the romance at the beginning of Beale Street is so profound. Yeah. It's so moving. And when we saw the film at the end of it, the audience was just quiet. That's how you know. No one moved. No, no, no. It was like church. Uh, everyone was absorbing it. It did the thing that's so difficult to do with a good book. And that's... How do you make cinema out of a book? Books are books. Mm. You have your imagination to work on. There's, you're working on a thousand different planes with literature. And then as soon as you put it on a, on a screen, we're talking about a big, flat, two-dimensional thing, a three-dimensional projection of it. It Other elements become more important than the words because mm-hmm. it's cinema. It's so visual. It's so... And they're nothing alike, but Barry Jenkins and Spike Lee use these... Uh, fantastic colors mm. and, and they highlight the the street scene of New York like no one else. Well, they're also, as you say, willing to take some time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, it, that gets a hard knock because people think arty films are boring because the scenes last too long and they want everything to be fast. But when you're trying to tell an emotional story that's hung about a, a relationship that gets thwarted because of the bigoted racist system that controls America in order to make that not a documentary that just slams you to to keep the metaphor of it. He really lets everything be about the eyes and the connection. Mm -hmm. The sex isn't so much about the sex. The sex is about love and the sex is about connecting in moonlight. It was about the lack of, Mm-hmm. about finding identity and about... Well, in both those films, you see the moment, he, and he lingers on the moment, and you never see this, of the two people deciding to be in a relationship mm-hmm. and and taking that step and really thinking about it. And, and it's wild to see it play out mm. and not rushed. It's not a foregone conclusion. No. They know what's at stake, or they think they might know. Oh, it's so, the stakes are so high, and that's important. Uh, nothing engages people unless it's about life and death. You, you've got to make stakes that high. And what you said before when we were talking about the picture after we saw it, um, he lets black people be beautiful. Mm-hmm. He lets black people be confrontational. He lets black people be small. He lets them be big. He lets them do all these be things. philosophical. Yeah, he lets them do all these things that other... Directors have chosen not to do over the years, or maybe they haven't been, had the chance to be portrayed in all these wonderful, arty ways. Spike Lee, of course, is a real professor and a polemicist, in my opinion. He is there to instruct. Um, Barry Jenkins is very instructive. There's no question of that. But I think his poetry is the vehicle by which he instructs, whereas Spike mm-hmm. Lee is literally sometimes going to tell you. <laughs> but also be humorous. 
he has a he has a superb sense of humor. For me, the best part of Black Klansman, obviously, I I love the dance when they're at the disco and they dance to the Cornelius Brothers in the beginning. But um, having her about Fonny tell the story of D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation was and juxtaposed 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 <laughs> conversely shown. <laughs> As Fritz Lang would have, with um, the Klan watching Birth of a Nation eating mm, popcorn. Mm-hmm. So they're watching this racist movie that was, no question, the most popular movie of early cinema. It's the first blockbuster. It is Titanic of 1915. Is it not a little troubling that uh, Hollywood and Highland, there is a tribute to Birth of a Nation? Well, that's the first thing. That's that- intolerance. Oh. That's the second picture after birth. It's the picture he made after Birth of a Nation that's his Heaven's Gate. It kind of oh, got right, the funding right, taken right, away right. a little because he did the four stories and one's the Babylon story. Right. And that's the weird elephant that's yes. depicted on Hollywood and Highland. There's a tiny, tiny, tiny statue of uh, a cameraman, I think, that's supposed to be Griffith near the smokehouse in Burbank across from Warner Brothers. There's uh-huh. a crap statue there. Well, a lot of actresses said, I think Lillian Gishman has said, there should be a 50-foot statue to David Wark Griffith. Because he invented cinema. He took the language of cinema and he really did a lot uh, to perfect it. Jump editing, um, playing with time, the back and forth, the excitement of what a a picture can be. Absolutely, uh, D.W. Griffith had all that. He also had a superb cameraman named Billy Bitzer. D.W. Griffith is a dyed-in-the-wool, card-carrying racist. Mm -hmm. And there's no way around that. It's not that he was an anomaly in the film industry. It's just that he was a gigantically successful director then. It doesn't excuse him in any way that his craft um, is impressive and that Orphans of the Storm is a a, a wildly engaging movie. If you see Birth of a Nation, you'll be repulsed by its terrible message of racism. And it casts black people as terrible villains and the Klan as shining knights on horseback. Which is why it's so perfect in the Spike Lee movie to have Harry Belafonte, who is that age, by the mm-hmm. way. I think he was born in 1915, 1916. He's, he might, he's older than Sidney Poitier, who just had a birthday. I might have to look it up here just so I'm not completely being I, an idiot. I think that he's uh, mid-90s. Well, and I, he would have been born when the picture came out, I think. What year is he born? He was dubbed the... This is 1927. Really? Can you only be that, that young? All right, fine. In any case, he's he's uh, very wise, and he tells the story of how Woodrow Wilson said... Um, he's 91. 91. He said, um, Birth of a Nation is history written by lightning. Woodrow Wilson was um, a misogynist, a screaming racist. He treated the veterans from World War One. Awfully. He was also, of course, wildly unhealthy and uh, didn't. He imprisoned the suffragettes. He, he, he hated women. And yes. Woodrow Wilson is, an, is a terrible president. Mm-hmm. People don't talk about it because he did two terms and um, he was against the League of Nations. I mean, he, he was morally as bankrupt as any mm-hmm. and not an unintelligent person, which is what makes it so bloody disappointing. Like with Nixon, the disappointment is with the character. Mm-hmm. Um, with 45, the disappointment's with everything. He's just a... Absolutely mis- a everything. Uh, no, there's nothing there. With W, there was nothing there either, in my opinion. But Trump's even more... Um, Wilson and Hoover, um, Nixon, you think you're not that stupid. You know what this is about. Mm-hmm. And you're still that mm-hmm. awful. Right. You're going to make these decisions. 
craven and morally bankrupt. No. In any case, uh, if you see Black Klansman, you'll get to the scene in the picture that we're talking about. And um, it's a lesson in history. It's mm-hmm. a history lesson about film, because Spike Lee's wildly interested in film. But it's also a lesson about the history of America. When he talked about slaves coming over 400 years ago, 1619, there's a point to that. And the point's reiterated in the movie Black Klansman about D.W. Griffith's blockbuster hit of that year, which people are still talking about, which still everyone knows the name of. If you say Birth of a Nation, people still kind of know what that means. They might even not even know what the movie mm-hmm. is. Um, the picture that the cat made a couple years ago was The Birth of a Nation that he did right. the remake where he did it from the point of view of Nat Turner, mm-hmm. um, which I saw as well. Uh, and then the movie ends, Black Klansman, with documentary footage of Charlottesville, mm-hmm. which is an extraordinary way to end a pop action comedy about this... That's very uh, stylized. Way stylized. The the bell bottoms... As as he does. But I mean, you know, the camera movement, the the costuming, uh, he keeps a light touch throughout all of that. And that is his gift. I think that's why it works so bloody well. And obviously, Do the Right Thing should have been nominated for Best Picture and Best Screenplay that year and Best Director, but people were freaking out a little too hard then. It was right after Toronto Brawley. We watched it again recently, and I liked it even more. It's moving. It's, it's wildly moving. The performances moving. are wonderful. It's just, uh, it's a great film. And the fact that he does it in that uh, tiny couple blocks mm-hmm. with the Greek chorus. I think it's like best years of our lives, or... He always reminds me of... Vincent Minnelli with the dolly shots yeah. and the colors, you feel like a, a musical is going to break out at any moment. Right. I mean, movies that are like the essence of America at a time and place. Mm-hmm. And I think that movie is, is a great American movie. Yes, it is. And the message, of course, about the police brutality in the black neighborhood is not lost now at all. It's, if anything, more dis, disquieting to see it now mm-hmm. and see the same issues bloody mm-hmm. being run over. Um, yeah, that movie's pumping. From the very first shot of Rosie Perez. And w- what did he wear to the Oscars? Yeah, Love and Hate. He wore Radio Rakim's. And he mentioned him a million yeah, times. Yeah. Bill. He's a marvelous actor. Uh, he mentioned Radio Rakim. He had the Prince thing on. It was all signifiers. Right. He, he was prepared. Yeah, unlike <clears throat> lots of people who phone it in. Um, Hannah Beachler and Ruthie Carter made Oscar history for Black Women. She won the production design Oscar along with Jay Hart for Black Panther. That's Hannah Beachler. And um, let's see here. This is how... Uh, oops, look so upon Deb get the die line here. The wait was long, more than three decades. But on Sunday night, two African-American women won Oscars. The, why is this significant? They were non-acting categories. No African-American women have ever won an Oscar in any category except for supporting actress and actress. Is there? Yeah, Halle Berry. Mm-hmm. Uh, Whoopi Goldberg. Uh, uh, um, Regina King yesterday. Regina King, but uh, two years ago for Fences. Um, I'm blanking on her name. Oh She's marvelous. Uh, Viola Davis. Viola Davis won. She was wonderful. And uh, uh, Hattie McDaniel in 39. For yeah, 1939. Her. Right. As Whoopi Goldberg said when she hosted the Oscars one year, I thought Hattie McDaniel and I were the blacklist. <laughs> um, 
so for them to win uh, outside category, just just smashing. She won for production design, Ruthie Carter for costume design. Sunday Night's wins were the appropriate given the film they won were Barrier Breaking Spectacle. Black Panther, by the way, is the picture. Directed by a black man, Ryan Coogler. Um, biggest hit in the U.S. of 2018. It's the biggest picture of the year, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know. I don't, you know, like they... they it was so much Private fun. Private Ryan and Titanic were nominated for Best Picture. Greatest Show on Earth was Best Picture. Oliver was Best Picture. You can't nominate the biggest picture of the year for Best Picture because it's a, cartoon, a comic book movie. Everyone loves comic book movies. And how many stars were in it? Every great star was in it. It was like, I don't know. I don't like comic book movies very much. And I, I loved it. And um, uh, a box office smash. While there's been more progress in the high-profile Oscar categories and recognizing people of color... That advancement has historically been limited to on-screen work. Beachler and Carter were instrumental in bringing life to the lush Wakanda, the fictional African country where most of the Black Panther takes place. Carter, whose career stretches three decades, went to great lengths using a 3D printer to authentically create costumes influenced by indigenous people around the African continent. By the way, you can go online and uh, Ms. Carter takes you through where every element of all the different costumes in the movie, especially the waterfall scene where mm-hmm. you get to see a dazzling variety. We're talking about Mali, Burundi. Um, so every, almost every country in Africa is represented um, by their fashions, costumes, textiles, colors, uh, the hats, the culture. It's really an achievement. And um, mm-hmm. she went all out to make Wakanda kind of a celebration and a microcosm cost you know filmically mm-hmm. in a costume way of africa and uh, as we were reminded by a friend from africa africa is always de- depicted smaller than it is on maps and globes africa is twice the size that it is in my opinion <laughs> um it's it's shown in the mercator projection as being slightly bigger than sort of asia on its side but it's bigger than that mm-hmm. it's also longer than that and um also uh as gil scott heron once said Egypt and Libya are part of Africa, and suddenly they became the Middle East. Mm-hmm. We changed their designation. Egypt is the cradle of Africa. Morocco is part of Africa. They're, mm-hmm. They don't have the same people, language, anything that the other parts of Africa do. It's a really complex, giant place. Mm-hmm. White people are from Africa. Black people are from Africa. Berbers are from Africa. Arabs live Everyone in Africa. Chinese Africa. people live in Africa. Indian people live in Africa. It's not this, it's, you know, uh, America's view of it is super stunted. And I, uh, when we saw Black Panther, um, the crowd was just screaming through the whole bloody thing. Yeah, that was what, And again, was fabulous. It, thank God it had a sense of humor. It was so funny. The When he goes, um, we're going to eat you and boil you or whatever. And they go, really? And he goes, no, we're vegetarians. And then the other one. Went, <laughs> the sister. Right. This The sister. And uh, uh, Frodo walks in and she goes, I know who you are, colonizer. And ever <laughs> since then, colonizer's been everybody's favorite. It's just fantastic. Uh, there's been a long time coming, Carter said in her acceptance speech. She's been nominated for Amistad, which you may remember is the Steven Spielberg movie um, about uh, the slave ship where John Adams defends uh, uh, the black people in that one. And um, Malcolm X, mm. which has Denzel at the lead, uh, 1992. Uh, and if you haven't seen Malcolm X, it's quite a good Malcolm X. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Denzel's tremendous in it. He, uh, My other favorite Malcolm X is Al Freeman Jr. in Roots 2. Um, mm-hmm. He plays Malcolm X. And I thought Al Freeman Jr. was a really superb Malcolm X. 
And that one, because Alex Haley wrote the autobiography of, of Malcolm X with Malcolm X, um, it's pretty graphic. You I know? think Governor Northam just has just gotten around to that. Oh, gee whiz. Governor Northam. <laughs> Governor Northam was what? <laughs> He, he's watching all the blackface scenes from the Nikki and Judy movies. If if you're anywhere near Jackson, Mississippi, there is a wonderful museum. The up, upper floor is about uh, slave ships. Uh, it's called the, the Smith Robertson Museum, and it's run by uh, four women. And uh, they've done a wonderful job of... Uh, discussing the history of uh, Jackson specifically and uh, African uh, people enslaved in America. He's saying off mic. Yes. Uh, there's a, a smashing, uh, a, a really riveting history of uh, James Meredith, mm-hmm. the first black student to attend University of Mississippi, Ross Barnett, the governor who tried to keep him from doing so, um, where my mother lived in Brandon. My mother was from Casilla, but she lived in Brandon uh, for a good time, uh, a long while, I mean. Um, the reservoir was still called the Ross Barnett Reservoir when we used to go. Uh, Ross Barnett was a strict segregationist, as we like to say. And um, there's also an in-depth look at the Woolworth lunch counter protests mm-hmm. um, and Medgar Evers' entire life. Mm-hmm. And that's quite moving. The slave ship portion is pretty... It's right near Medgar Evers' office. Mm. It's within walking distance. Of which downstairs, there's a restaurant that we learned about by watching uh, the wonderful... uh, um, Who's the short one? (laughs) Andrew Zimmern. Andrew Zimmern, who's the short one. (laughs) Uh, Now I've really disclosed myself. Wow. Andrew Zimmern went there and... um, didn't he go in the back, create a, pig, there, a pig's ear sandwich? They do pig's ear sandwiches is what the right, specialty there, you've is. Got, you've got a hot a sausage, sausage. A, a pig's ear, and um, bologna. bologna, and that's it. And the drinks are served from a... It's, uh, it's the Big Apple. And, yeah, uh, what's Medgar, called? Big Apple. And, right, his uh, office was upstairs. Medgar Evers' office was upstairs. So when local civil rights, or when civil rights people would come there... Um, they would um, go meet upstairs in his office, but they would also eat downstairs. In the, they would get food and bring it up in a paper bag. By the way, Jennifer and I had sandwiches and Cokes there, and I think it was $6. Mm-hmm. And that was two years ago. No, I did not have the pig's ear, to be full disclosure. Um, although it is the specialty. And by the way, it's not... Um, it's, 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 it's soft and chewy. It's not uh, gross. Uh, Medgar, I had the bologna. Medgar Evers' widow is still alive. Mm. And she's a woman of some uh, grace. Yes. Marvel may have created the first box superhero, but through costume design, we turned him into an African king, Ms. Carter said. It's been my life's honor to create costumes. Thank you to the Academy. Thank you for honoring African royalty and the empowered way women can look and lead on screen. Just fantastic. Mm-hmm. For her to be the first uh, black woman to win in a non-acting category, Beachler's acceptance speech, she paid tribute to the director, Ryan Coogler, along with Marvel and Rachel Morrison, the film cinematographer who became the first woman nominated for an Oscar in the cinematography category. That was last year. 
no woman had ever been nominated for cinematography. And by the way, that was the category that they wanted to uh, award people off camera this year until there was an outcry and then finally it was back. And uh, it was cinematography and editing. And as we were talking about, most editing jobs are women. Women, yeah. So The most famous editors are Thelma Schoonmacher. And who was um, uh, Michael Powell's editor? Well, wasn't that she a woman as well? Thelma Schoonmacher was married to Michael Powell. Oh, that's right. I'm, confused. I'm conflating the Tarantino's two. Tarantino's editor. Yes, was, was a woman, woman as well. Um, skadoodling editing and cinematography to the side is like saying we're going to have the Grammys, but we're not going to talk about um, the singing part. We're not going to talk about production. We're not going to talk about lyrics. Lyrics get in the way of the whole thing here. Um, if there's no cinematography, then no one's shooting the movie. If there's no editing, then no one's assembling the movie. The two things movies require... As I understand it, it's a visual art yeah, form. The two things movies require are to be shot and assembled. After, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, you can you can shoot the movie, but if you don't put the movie together... Oh, whatever. The, the Academy... I hate them so. I hate them. I hate them so, so, so much. Um, uh, the less we say about the Green Book is probably the best, better. But will you take us on a little trip about Don Shirley? I want to. Oh yeah. I want to focus on Don Shirley for a second because he was a real person. Um, mm-hmm. This movie, The Green Book. Uh, I, you know, see it, don't see it, do what you like. It's fiction. Just remember that, and it's a movie. Uh, know that his family wasn't particularly chuffed about it. Um, it's certainly bathing in glory as a picture, so you know, good for them, and congratulations to Mashrali and all that. Um, I don't think Viggo Mortensen's heart's in the wrong, wrong place. I think he thought he was making a movie that was trying to say something. Yeah, I don't know. Whatever, I can't speak for him. Don, in any case, let's talk about Don Shirley, yeah, who Don, was a real musician and a real person. They, they didn't consult with Don Shirley's family. Um, Mistake number one. <laughs> Don, Don Shirley passed away at 86 in uh, 2013. And he was a, a contentious man. He was uh, classically trained and also a jazz musician who didn't like to be called a jazz musician. Yeah, he also wild. had a trio and he did not like the word trio. So, you know, tread carefully. He said uh, jazz piano players, he told the Times in 82 when he was appearing in Greenwich Village, smoke while they're playing and they'll put the glass of whiskey on the piano and then they'll get mad when they're not respected. Like Arthur Rubenstein. You don't see Arthur Rubenstein smoking and putting a glass on the piano. Unbelievable. He added, I am not an entertainer, but I'm running the risk of being considered an entertainer by going into a nightclub because that's what they have in there. I don't want anybody to know me well enough to slap me on the back and say, hey, baby, the black experience through music with a sense of dignity. That's all I have ever tried to do. So I'm guaranteeing you that he would not like the movie, The Green Probably Book. Probably not. Uh, he certainly wouldn't like any of that. Uh, as Seth Meyers so brilliantly put it in that sketch, white savior complex jazz, uh, where no. white people are enabling their one black friend to move through the system and that somehow they deserve bonus high fives for that. He was friends with Duke Ellington and uh, Sarah Vaughn. He didn't like to improvise like many others in the genre. He once said, I almost changed my name twice because I was associated with nightclubs. Isn't that astonishing? (laughs) He never abandoned classical entirely. He continued to play occasional concerts 
when, uh, like in 1954, when he performed with the Boston Pops again in Chicago, or the following year when he played with the NBC Symphony at the premiere of Duke Ellington's Piano Concerto at Carnegie Hall. When Ellington died in 1974, Don Shirley wrote a symphonic work uh, and got the Hamilton Philharmonic Orchestra to play it. Uh, he's an enormously respected musician and uh, one that decidedly deserved a motion picture depiction of his life. Um, maybe this wasn't the ideal one. Right. Uh, I, because definitely he would want it on his terms. Yeah. He would have wanted it on his terms. And it was, he's sort of like Nina Simone in, in that he wanted to be a classical artist, but was, was told that he couldn't because he was African-American. Right. He has to be, he has to be a jazz musician in playing clubs, which obviously wasn't his bag. Um, this is him playing. This is the Lonesome Road. They use it as the closing theme, I think, in the picture. I'm struck by something, and this probably isn't the most apt analogy or even metaphor or whatever it is, but um, Earl Garner uh, spent a yes. lifetime playing jazz, and Earl Garner couldn't play the same song the same way twice. Like, he was so improvisational mm -hmm. that... They, when they did recording sessions, he simply couldn't play the song the same way through the, the same way. He changed notes, or he changed this, or he changed that. And, and um, his uh, his music is so beautiful. He's such a great pianist. But he was Mr. Good Times, and uh, Don Trilly, I don't think, was... Uh... No. Let's talk about Jackie Shane. Yay! And I'm going to play a little Jackie to... Shane here. Yeah, if you will. Dig this. Jackie Shane is swirling in the stars. Jackie Shane was nominated for Best Historical Grammy and did not win in the recent this Grammys. Year. This year. And you say that you're my friend. But I don't know why you're here. She wants to know how I feel. Tell her that I'm happy. Tell her that I'm gay, says Jackie Shane. <laughs> Jackie Shane was uh, historical for a lot of reasons. Yes. Uh, her ob obituary in the Tennessean was... she from Memphis? Uh, she was from Nashville. Nashville. Was pioneering transgender singer Jackie Shane, uh, a Nashville native, dies at 78. Jackie Shane, a transgender soul singer who became a pioneering musician in Toronto, where she packed out nightclubs in the 1960s, has died. A Canadian broadcasting company documentary about Shane renewed interest in the singer, and a few years ago, Douglas McGowan from Numero Group tracked her down by phone in Nashville, where she was born. She agreed to work with the label on a new release of all her singles and live recordings called Any Other Way, which was released in 2017. Music journalist Rob Bowman interviewed her by phone for hours to write the liner notes for the project, which detailed her youth growing up black and transgender in the Jim Crow era of the South through her travels to Canada and her recording and performing career. I am incredibly honored that Jackie trusted me enough to tell her story, Bowman said Friday. The album was nominated for Best Historical Album at this month's Grammy Awards, but lost to Voices of Mississippi. 
Still, Bowman said Friday that Shane was glad that people were discovering her music after so many years, and he was glad that she got to see that before she died. She was so grateful that people cared. She knew that she was loved and that her music was loved. After the album came out, news outlets began calling her, and her photos started appearing in newspapers and magazines. RuPaul and Laverne Cox have tweeted stories about her. By the uh, time she was 13, she considered herself a woman, and her mother unconditionally supported her. Even in school, I never had any problems, Shane told the AP in 2018. People have accepted me. She played drums and became a regular session player for Nashville R&B and gospel record labels and went on tour with artists such as Jackie Wilson. She knew Little Richard since she was a teenager and later in the 80s, I mean 60s, met Jimi Hendrix, who spent time gigging on Nashville's Jefferson Street. But soon the South's Jim Crow laws became too harsh for her to live with. She began playing gigs in Boston, Montreal, and eventually Toronto, which despite being a majority white city at the time, still had a budding R&B musical right. scene. Right, and the black fans there and loved she, her. Yeah, she was she, on Yonge Street she felt, forever. Yeah, she felt really uh, included there. And uh, You can go online and see a, a show called Night. Train is it from '65? Uh, it's a Canadian TV show, and uh, she does um, walking the dog on that. And there's, uh, you can see her on video, um, and it's just fantastic. What a brave, brave soul! Right? She said, "I have never felt that I had to change or do anything that wasn't natural to me. I will never ever be some kind of wishy-washy creature that pretends or lets others guide me. I guide my life; it is mine, no matter what anyone says. I'm going to be Jackie." Ed Sullivan sent a guy to ask her to be on the show after she did that um, gig on Night Train because it was such a swinging um, appearance. And um, apparently she said to them, they said to her, you, you, you can do it, but you got to tone down the makeup. You got to lose the makeup and the hair and everything. She was wearing a glitter top. You'll see it. And she said, stuff it. I can't. And then my <laughs> favorite quote is, Ed Sullivan looked like Dr. Frankenstein had a hand in building him. So why should I have to deal with that? And not, and that, oh, and they're going to tell me how to look. That was my favorite. They're going to tell me how to look. When Ed Sullivan had this horrible square head and the terrible shoulders. Um, Jackie Shane is uh, astonishing. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, and is swirling in the heavens right now. And thank God she got some recognition. At least she knew she was mm-hmm. up for best mm-hmm. uh, historical Grammy. And my understanding is from reading several articles, including the one you read, uh, she told Bowman at the Guardian that she wanted to go on tour next year. And so you know, like I say, go and see the people. Maybe Staples is out there. Ramsey yes. Lewis is out there. They're all out there. Betty Levat. Betty Levat, uh, Betty Levat. We get to touch Betty Levat. Big moment in my life. <laughs> she said I, I she mean, was touch. a we, we hugged. She said she was a hugger. We, we hugged her. I didn't touch her. We hugged. <laughs> uh, let's talk about something that uh, was near and dear to our childhood. And I'm gonna I'm gonna put the volume up here a little bit. Peter Tork has swirling eyes full of spirals like he did in the show every time he saw a pretty girl. Peter Tork was one of the monkeys. He was a folk musician from New York. He auditioned for the... This part's great.
Um, sadly, uh, everyone from my generation uh, is a Monkees fan. Um, the cartoon came on when we were little kids. Why is that sadly? Oh, I loved it. it from the, uh, it wasn't a cartoon. It was a, a parody, a takeoff of uh, uh, the Beatles movie Help. Um, they lived in a house together that was full of psychedelic grooviness, and they had wild antics. And sometimes there was really, it's pretty really s- surreal. Yeah, B movie gangsters. They, uh, they're uh, showing it now on TV here. Are they? It's oh great. yeah, it, uh, we watched it in the '90s when it was on VH1, and it was. I I watched it when uh, Davy Jones passed away. Oh my God! Right. They, Every time one of them. Yeah. So uh, this weekend, uh, one channel was showing the Peter episodes, the Peter centered episodes. Well, Peter always fell in love with a girl and then there, somehow gangsters would kidnap him or whatever. <laughs> and the, all these TV character actors from the 60s who had been in movies in the 50s were the bad guys in the, in the show. And then they would all have to band together and save Peter or whatever. Lots of vocal interjections from Nikki. Um, Peter ostensibly played bass. Uh, I don't think they allowed him to play anything at the beginning. Here, crack out some no, of those quotes. He, he actually showed up at the studio with his uh, instrument and was kind of gobsmacked that they didn't want him to play. Yeah, I think he was told to go home. Um, the LA Times obituary by Valerie Nelson. <clears throat> Was the headline was beloved and offbeat member of the monkeys, which yeah. I thought was apt. Uh, Mickey Dolan said, There are no words right now, heartbroken over the loss of my monkey brother. Um, he did an interview with Rolling Stone about 10 years ago, and they didn't print it until now. And it's a really he always got the short stick, <laughs> it's a really lovely interview, it's online now. Um, he said uh, that um, he was in Greenwich Village. He was he was a folk musician playing in Greenwich Village, with, and he knew Stephen Stills. So right. when he moved out to L.A., uh, Stephen told him about the show, and he said, oh, they don't want me because they don't like my hair and my teeth. Right, and they asked even still. But he wanted Nordic. If look, there was somebody that, that looked like yeah, him, yeah. and but had better hair and teeth, and, and so Peter he, had good hair and teeth. So he told Peter, and apparently Peter Turk didn't was like what, and yeah. and finally he kept after him, and he went in and he got it, and he said that when he told Mama Cass, uh, he knew everybody right. in in the music industry, he knew David Crosby and everybody, and, and he told Mama Cass, and he and she, he said she was so happy for him. Isn't that cute? And that when he, during breaks on the set, he would go to Mama Cass's house in Laurel Canyon and hang out with wow. her, which is just delightful. Isn't it? Um, uh, Janice Joplin uh, was a friend of his, and he said, when the whole thing exploded, she was delighted for me and delighted to see me and made no bones about it. The big boys made no bones. They had nothing to say about us. They saw us exactly for what we were. They understand. They understood the process. They knew what was going on. They had no gripes. What's to gripe about for crying out loud? Uh, George Harrison and Ringo came over to his house. Uh, Stephen Stills was there, and he was embarrassed. He shook hands with George and kind of turned his back on him. The way shy guys will do. Uh, we all jammed. Stephen and George and Ringo. I was on keyboards. 
uh, it was fabulous. Stephen Stills, George, Ringo, and Peter Torres. Yes, yes. I'm assuming uh, there was marijuana. He got to uh, be at Monterey Pop. He introduced Buffalo Springfield. Yeah, he did. I was going to say, he, he, because he was mates with Stephen Stills. And he said, I introduced Lou Rawls as the man with the pipes everybody wishes they had. Lou Rawls. That man was just the best. I heard him sing the other days. Still fabulous. I introduced Booker T and the MGs, who introduced the Bar K's, who introduced Otis Redding. And there was Otis Redding. This is the love crowd, right, is what he said. He was so congenial. The thing about the Stax Volt gang, Booker T and the Barkays and Otis, was that those guys were just totally, fabulously, thoroughly well-established in their own musical hearts and minds. We visited the Stax Volt studios once on the road, the Monkees did, and we sat in with them and jammed a little bit, not much, and those guys, just the most solid, secure musicians. Really? They sat in at Isn't Stax? cute? Uh, when you have enough of an awareness of what you're doing, what basketball players call in the zone, and secure enough with the guys around you that you relax and let the music play you, I'll tell you a secret. The secret is to play within yourself. If you know only four or five notes, play those notes with conviction. And he said, uh, when asked how he was doing these days, the 60s were a fabulous time for me. And I've had some ups and downs in my life, but mostly the glamour and the glitz is gone. But the fabulousness of my life is still with me. I'm glad to be where I am and who I am. Uh, and the interviewer says, sounds like you've discovered some wisdom. Hard earned and not discovered. Strictly a function of being at the right place at the right time. You go into life sometimes, you expect justice, and if you get mercy, you go, all right, thank you. That's what's happened to <laughs> you me. You expect justice and you get That's mercy. That's with uh, uh, Brian Hyatt in Rolling Stone. So, Isn't it, that lovely? It really, He seems like a lovely person that everyone really liked, including Jimi Hendrix. And, yes. Um, he wrote the closing theme to The Monkey Show, which yes. Dave Foley told me the other <laughs> night at a gig, and I never knew that. And, of course, I'd heard it every week because I watched right. the monkeys constantly. And it goes like this. Mickey sings it, and it's a, a super 60s garage. Um, we're going to take over the world generational right. groovy group. Peter Tork, baby. Hipster. Flipster. Such an old hippie. Monkey. It's the hippie song in the show. In this generation. Just fantastic. Peter Tork. Yeah, Irreplaceably fun. Yeah, a really beautiful person. Um, a couple things, and then we'll probably push on. I want to talk about the women reporters um, that we've been mm -hmm. talking about. Julie K. Brown at the Miami Herald has done a lot exposing this Epstein scandal, which you may have been hearing about. You may have also heard that Robert Kraft is um, about to be apprehended. Of course, he'll be released, and he'll pay his bond, and he'll do all that. Um He's a donator to uh, 45's campaign. He's a billionaire owner of the um, Boston Patriots football team, and he is an extraordinary right-wing ideologue, which means 
he supports all the things like um, anti-choice and uh, jailing children and uh, denying women rights. And at the same time, um, was frequenting a place in a mall where sex slaves were forced to perform acts for $79 and he was taking a um, lim- chauffeured Bentley there. Mm-hmm. So understand the kind of people we're talking about here. Um, he went twice in one day. On the day of the playoffs. Uh of course, 45 gave his usual, oh, he denies it and all that. And that place is 28 minutes from Mar-a-Lago. Yep. They're very Not good. that I looked. They're very good friends. Um, he said that Paul Manafort, um, who was a sexual pervert, uh, was a wonderful guy. He said that Bill O'Reilly was unfairly accused, Roger Ailes, you know, Roy Moore. There's no um, predator or sexual abuser that he won't defend, including himself. And use the most weakest defense for them. So anyway, hopefully Kraft is going to get his cocoa real soon. Julie K. Brown at the Miami Herald um, has been instrumental in him exposing what um, Secretary Acosta did when he was a lawyer to um, subvert the justice system. A judge ruled this week that what happened was utterly illegal. Diane Feinstein was author of a bill that came out in the early 2000s that protects the right of the victims in these kind of abuse cases. And absolutely, they were not informed of what was going on. And that is where the breach is. And that's where the illegality is. Mm -hmm. He was given a sweetheart deal because he's friends with 45. And because 45 was part of his swinging crew of people that liked um, underage women. I don't want to put a real fine point on it here. And I'm, I'm afraid I have to give a trigger alert now because I'm not going to talk anymore about it. But... It's a very sensitive issue, and it's not something I want to go into. I do, however, want to laud Julie K. Brown, who should get a mm-hmm. Pulitzer Prize. Oh, my God. She went after it, and, and she's been retweeting everything about it and trying to get people's attention. And uh, perhaps it's no coincidence that she's a woman, her editor's a woman. Well, the editor um, allowed her to pursue this. A man mm-hmm. might not have cared so much. Well, she's she's been dogged about it, and it's fantastic. And and we discussed, uh, I think, last week that she won the Polk Award, but people are asking that maybe she get uh, the Pulitzer for doing this. Uh, no question, she should. Uh, Jamel Hill uh, writes for The Atlantic and uh, was a sports writer and sports um, uh, columnist and sports um, commentator uh, for ESPN until she piped up about racism. At that moment, she was suspended by ESPN, and a lot of white sports guys got real angry with her. Um, She's landed on her feet and ended up at The Atlantic. Um, She's also a reporter you should support. Um, I want you to talk a little bit about Alicia R. Dexter because of what happened last week in uh, uh, Alabama. Right. You might have heard that that the the publisher-editor of the paper... uh, Oh, my God, what he wrote. Whose name... It's, it's, oh God, what is it? Goodlow. Yeah, he, he wrote that he wanted... Goodlow Sutton. So he, he wrote that he thought that the KKK should write again yeah. to really sort things out in D.C. Because that's sane and sound. The problem is that there wasn't enough Klan members keeping a hold on what was going on in D.C. Yeah, so cut to, here is the, the statement from the paper the other day. The Democrat reporter is pleased to announce effective February 21st, Alicia R. Dexter will be the publisher and editor of the newspaper Going Forward. How about that? The Democrat reporter black woman. has provided the community of West Alabama with quality news for over 140 years, and you may have full confidence that 
Ms. Dexter will continue in the tradition, and this is what I love, as well as moving the paper into a new direction. You mean not urging that the KKK take over Washington? She's an African-American woman in her late 40s who's replacing an 80-year-old man. With a history of racist um, uh, behavior, diatribes, remarks. And this is what I didn't know until today when I was uh, looking up other articles about it. She was working as the front office clerk until this. She had a background. As a journalist. But she was working as the front office clerk. Well, isn't it fabulous that um, the Democrat put her forward and did this? It's just smashing. Because there's no other way to say what you're going to say and to... Well, even change that pattern unless you put your money where your mouth is and just say, we're going to do this. You know, uh, Senator Doug Jones said his dangerous, the good low sentence, dangerous views do not represent Alabama or the small town papers in Alabama that do great work every day. The good people of Linden deserve so much better than these racist rants. And I am confident they will get it with the new editor, Alicia Dexter. And by the way, if you're sinking into a depression, and I know some of you are. Keep in mind, there's two senators in Alabama and one's a Democrat because of what happened in that election with Roy Moore mm-hmm. and what, how um, women of color voted in that election. The power of that is, shouldn't be lost on you. Um, what happened in North Carolina and what happened in uh, uh, Georgia IA and what happened in Florida are examples of uh, the other thing that can happen, which is suppression of votes. But in Alabama... You saw uh, a predator get shut down by the electorate. And um, for him to come out and say that in support of her now is just so beautiful. Uh, and an uneasy segue, I'm uh, um, performing my comedy all over the world. <laughs> and my comedy is so important. I am going to say one thing. Brody Stevens was a lovely person, is a lovely person. And he and I knew each other. And I'd known him for 20 years. I met him at um, Chicago um, at a festival, I want to say 99 or 2000. I called him Brodels. He was a big burly dude and he was very athletic and a nice cat, really nice cat. And we were comedians together, obviously. I don't think I ever met him. I don't think you did either, sadly. He, um, he and I talk baseball all the time. Anyway, I just want to say that Brody Stevens is swirling in the heavens and um, there's definitely a place for him there because... The sweetness of his personality, I think, is the thing that everybody remembers and why um, the comedy community, particularly here in um, Los Angeles, is taking this so personally and taking it to heart is because he wasn't an evil person. He didn't have any of that in him. His show business aspirations weren't, didn't include stomping on people or, you know, being the kind of venal show business person that uh, one runs into in one's life here. In any case, um, not only is he swirling in the heavens, he's throwing a fastball for batting practice <laughs> and possibly hitting a fungo to the outfield. We're playing with whose lawn is it anyway um, all over. Ryan is on the show this week. We had our David Foley, but the height requirement wasn't met, and so we're back to Ryan. Um, we're in Victoria on the 28th. That's this Thursday at the Royal. Then we go to the Hard Rock in uh, Coquitlam. This is listed in Vancouver, but I will tell you that it's Coquitlam. <laughs> and then we're in Richmond, B.C. for two nights on the 2nd and 3rd of March at the River Rock. 
Why do I mention the River Rock? Because not only they have beef chow fun, they upgraded the Chinese restaurant. It used to be kind of a sad counter where people with um, debilitating lung diseases spent their time um, waiting their eventual demise. And now it seems to be more of a, a sexy situation, which I really appreciate. And as you know, I only care about two things, three things when I come to a town. Um, huffing mad dank and crushing mad chow fun. <laughs> and so uh, that's where I'm going to the River Rock and we're going to be there. Then the weekend after, when, once March commences, once again, we return to Oregon, which um, I couldn't be happier about because we love it. Uh, we'll be in Eugene, uh, the Berkeley of Oregon on March 6th, and then Salem, the not Berkeley of Oregon on the 7th. Uh, Salem is politically not as, uh, or Eugene's like groovy chickens, McTavish, that place we go to for the salmon at the breakfast and whatnot. Salem's nice. I love Salem, but wow. Witch trial. Um, it, it's not, uh, uh, what's the bloody capital? Olympia's in Washington, right? Mm-hmm. Oregon has some weird, oh, Salem's capital. That's why it's so weird. Yeah, yeah, it is. I just remembered it. God, I was going to say Corvallis. No, no, Corvallis. I've been to Corvallis. And we've all been to the Dalles, and we've been to Klamath Falls, and we've been to Medford. Look, we're from Northern California, so Oregon is an extension of Northern California. Let's be very honest about that. It was our road gigs when I was an 80s comic, and by that I mean my age. I'm in my 80s. Um, then we're playing the War Theater in Seattle on March 8th. Now, if you're going to see one Who's Line show, I would come to the Moore Theater in Seattle on um, March 8th. Two years ago, we played there. And Eric Idle got up and um, did an improv with us at the end of the show. Right. And um, Boz Skaggs got drunk with us backstage. So it was one of my favorite shows that we've ever done <laughs> in the history of Who's Line. Right. Because... Uh, Boz Skaggs came backstage and was great and drank vodka with us and then came back after and Eric got up and we dragged him out of the I dragged him out of the audience the other people did like, you really have to drag him or was... well no you don't have to drag a performer out of the audience <laughs> but uh, uh, Jeff who Jeff and Ryan uh, were hesitant and I said I I believe my quote in the dressing room was shy. I said I'll fucking do it and so at the end of the show, I said, we have a newcomer here. Give him a chance. You, you might like him. His name's Eric Idle. And um, he stood up and crazy, the place went crazy. And he, uh, my goodness, he was funny. How about Strange. that? Strange. Who knew? Adroit. Or I, I, that expression's really weird, though, isn't it? Because adroit infers that agosh is not. Um, I don't think that that's no? how it works there. You don't no. infer that? No. There's no... Am I no. implying or am I inferring? Because, am I implicating or am I inferring? Adroit would be two words. Really? Yes. But what about the other word? Adroit for, is... It's not Isn't separated. the Latin word uh, mean right-handed? Dexterous. This is, dexterous. This, this is going to be fascinating for people. I stand by this. I'm, you know what? I'm going to die on this hill. <laughs> I'm Jennifer, I'm planting a flag. <laughs> On green 18 here, and I'm dying on this fucking hill. Okay. I don't care right. if the show right. is canceled. I don't care if the National League is disbanded <laughs> for 15 years. Okay. So the Moore Theater, it's a really fun place. And then we're going to um, uh, Ana Cortez. No, I'm not going to say it the way I always say it. That's March 9th and 10th. We've added a show. I know on the website it only says the 9th. There is a show on the 10th. Um, uh, and that'll be Ryan. Ryan will be there for that. Davey might be there on the 10th. We'll see what happens. Then March 15th, we're in Nashville, Tennessee. 
And if you were going to come to one show in Nashville, this might be the one to come to. Because we are at, and you're, you're going to love this, Jennifer, James Knox Polk Theater. Wow. One of Tennessee's presidents and greatest sons. President Polk, who comes after Tyler, is it? It just says It fun. just screams slave owner. Yeah, fun. It screams fun, slave fun, owner. Fun. Uh, James K. Polk uh, 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 with Chip. And uh, Charles is going to be there. And then Charles is doing Chattanooga with us as well now. Charles lives down there. And we had a really terrific time with him in Asheville. Uh, and uh, where else did we go with him? Tennessee and was it? Arkansas as well. I can't remember. We did a tour of the South with Chip two weeks ago, Charles, and he's in such good form. He's so good looking now. He's got a great beard and um, me and him get to sing together and it's such a thrill because he's such a good singer. Um, when we met uh, him, Jennifer and I, um, some time ago, he was playing Buddy Holly in the West mm -hmm. End. He mm -hmm. replaced Paul Hip, who was a very famous Buddy Holly in that show, Buddy Holly, called Buddy. And... Um, Gosh, he's just a, a terrific presence on stage and funny as the devil. And uh, a lot of you Nashville fans, where Manash is at, don't know this about him. Um, he has a subversive sense of humor. He does. Seditious. He, he's a, Nasty. Yeah, Let's yeah. get real. He's, he's a little devil. Him and Wayne Brady get have this image like they're, um, I, like, I like the Bible and whatnot. Yeah. And when they do, they do like the Bible. I'm not diminishing their love of the Bible. But on the other hand, wow, can they be cutting? And I'm supposed to be the cutting right, main one. When you had Wayne on your chat show, yeah. that was uh, incendiary. Well, but they were, I mean, I'm friends it with was, them. But, it was yeah, terrific. We're friends with them. Is it, he was naughty. I get the reputation as a cutting acerbic acid person, but the truth is... Really? Wayne, I've heard about that. Wayne and Charles really have that uh, caustic. They have a, they have a streak. They can be caustic. He won't be on the night. So come and see us at the 15th and 16th at Nashville and Chattanooga, which I'm really looking forward to. I've never been to Chattanooga. Really? I love saying the word. It's like Mississauga it's or, fun. yeah. Um, uh, what's that place in the, Alabama? Those indigenous yeah. people's names. Uh, then we're going to be in uh, Norfolk, Virginia on the 21st with Dave Foley. Uh, Baltimore, Maryland at the Model Lyric with Dave. Uh, Atlantic City at the Ovation Hall. Uh, Sacramento with Ryan Stiles on the 29th, the 30th, uh, the Smith Center in Las Vegas with Ryan Stiles. Then we're going to Louisville uh, with Dave Foley, uh, Bloomington, Indiana with Dave Foley uh, on the 5th of April, the 6th of April at Terre Haute, and then the 7th and 9th of April. Oh, look at that. See, this this just got crazy. I was going to stop talking. Um, the 7th, no. we're at Bethlehem. Um Pennsylvania, which is where uh, Jesus was born, at the uh, uh, Zarathustra Center for the Performing Arts and um, uh, Peter Turk um, Hall of Mirrors, uh, in New Bedford, Mass. Uh, oh no, seventh is uh, Bethlehem. The ninth is New Bedford, Mass. That's with Drew Carey. Then the the tenth is with Drew Carey. Then somehow the look at that. What? This says April tenth with Drew Carey, and this says April tenth with Dave Foley. Well, it's magic. It is. Anyway, Drew's back on the road with us. Charles is back on the road with us. Dave is on the road with us. And Ryan is on well, the road with fun. us. So uh, come and see us with all of them. It's really fun. It's a good show. We hit the floor running. You can write us at fanmail for greg at gmail.com. Jennifer and I were reading them today. We try to respond to everyone who answers to us. Fanmail for greg at gmail. Hmm? Fanmail for greg at gmail.com. 
Um, Nightmare Before Christmas is a show. It's a concert. It's a thing. It's a mood. It's a feel. It's got mood. It's got feeling. Grease is the word. Is the word. Um, we're going on the road with it. And uh, Danny has uh, decided to expand our parameters. I don't know where we're playing in Tokyo. A bunch of people wrote me from Japan. One person offered their services as an interpreter. Well, that was nice. Isn't that sweet? Yeah, really nice. Um, we're only going to be there for like some five days, but we're uh, May 20, I think it's 5th and 6th, we're going to be in Tokyo. I don't know the venue yet. I don't even know that it's announced yet. If it's I don't okay. Know- it's okay. Okay. So uh, that'll be with Danny and um, uh, uh, I'm hoping Catherine O'Hare mm-hmm. and... Um, all of us in a full orchestra with John Maturi uh, at the helm. And then we'll be in um, uh, Glasgow on November 29th, uh, London on the 4th and 5th, I think it is, and then Dublin on the 7th and 8th. So come and visit us there. It'll, it's really fun. It's so much fun. It's really fun. It is. It is fun. Jennifer's had to sit through it a bunch of times. I've really loved it. It's good fun. Yeah. It actually, it actually has a... If you are losing hope, don't lose hope. Orange 45 and um, uh, um, Mike Pence are out of the country as the Yay. as we speak the recording of this. Um, Nancy Pelosi is in charge. She is, in fact, Alexander Yay. Haig. She is uh, <laughs> the person who, if something happened, uh, she would get the call. Hakeem Jeffries is um, an awesome member of the House of Representatives. While he is in Asia playing footsie with a brutal dictator, House Democrats are hard at work. This week, we will introduce voting rights legislation, oppose the fake emergency on the House floor, and pass a universal criminal background check bill. It's on. Hashtag for the people. Don't think that the Congress isn't doing anything. Don't think that electing 100 women into the House of Representatives and Senate and Governor Houses wasn't the most important thing that happened. The most important thing that happened isn't that he's still in control or that he's got some bizarre narrative or that... uh, uh, he's thinking of things to do or that he's yelling collusion at the top of his voice. The most important thing is that there's oversight now. Big Pharma is getting a hearing this week. Facebook's getting a hearing this week. Facebook and Big Pharma are going to have to... And by the way, Chuck Grassley, of all people, is going to have Big Pharma in. Oh, um, that's wild. Se- seven different CEOs are coming in from Big Pharma companies. I don't know that um, Purdue is one of them. Um ProPublica is going after the Sacklers and Purdue and about OxyContin, and they're really digging it's, like it's, no one has before. It's wildly informative and worth your while if you want to read about it. Also, mm-hmm. the artist Nan Golden has been adamant about different mm-hmm. museums taking money from the Sacklers. Which... She staged protests at the Met, and uh, she's demanded that the National Portrait Gallery... National Portrait Gallery or is the National Gallery? National Gallery. She, that they not take funding from them if she's going to have a show there. Isn't that amazing and astonishing? Well, yeah, someone has to take a stand. Well, there's... But I'm sure it's a great cost for her career. Of course. There's money laundering. And money laundering is when giant criminal organizations take money and run it through another, you know, entity in order to back it out the other side and be able to keep that money. There's also cleaning money. And the Rockefellers kind of invented it when they got Ivy Lee to be their PR person at the turn of the last century. 
And after killing a bunch of children and women and um, doing terrible things to the environment and ripping other people off, they decided to start the University of Chicago and a bunch of foundations and charities. And that's what the Sacklers have done, in essence, with the opioid crisis. What did Warren used to say? Throwing the public a bone so they don't burn our shit to the ground. Right. Um, the Ford Foundation, the... Uh, uh, whoever well, all, can... all the robber barons. Carnegie. That was their, their Carnegie. stick. Their, their, their whole... Yeah. MO. Everywhere I go and play, there is a DeVos... Hall in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Mm -hmm. There is a, 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 a Walmart Hall in well, the Walton Museum that you went yeah. to. Yeah, I mean, there, there's no place where billionaires haven't thrown a gajillion dollars at, a, at, a, at an art center, a hospital, a university, uh, an art collection. But that doesn't absolve them of the great crimes. No, it's a distraction. And it's to buy them a currency. Throwing the public a bone so that. What was his joke? Standard oil, throwing the public a bone so they won't burn our shit to the ground. Yes. Yep. Um, everyone should check out ProPublica, and they are in, in tandem now with the Sacramento Bee, and they're spending the year reporting on resources, safety, and crowding in California county jails. One last little thing. Uh, I'm not going to go... The city of New Orleans has Isn't done... That wonderful? Yeah. They've done something fabulous, and I'm going to direct you to a, web, a website. I've got the oh, go ahead. Here. Um, New Orleans has reduced its homeless population by 90%. That's what I'm talking about. They had a huge uptick, of course, after the Hurricane Katrina, and... and so the biggest uptick ever, perhaps. Uh, Martha Cagle, the executive director of Unity of Greater New Orleans, she said they thought about three things. First, um, they had to assemble an outreach team that was willing to go anywhere and do anything to rescue and rehouse a homeless person. Second, isn't that amazing? I remember that sentence right? from the article. But, I mean, anything like, and anywhere. Like, Interact with them. Get it done. Um, second, she says the group put all its efforts behind gathering a rent assistance fund. We went directly to Congress. We were very fortunate to get some resources together to actually be able to provide rent assistance and house people and what apartments we could find. And lastly, she says the team took a housing first approach, which is simply the idea that you accept people as they are, mm -hmm. whether they are sober or not. You just accept them as they are and you provide the housing first. Then once they're in their apartment, you immediately wrap all the services around them that they need to stay stable and live the highest quality life that they can live. We have to provide housing for people with disabilities. We have to have housing for the elderly. We have to make sure that children aren't homeless. That's part of being a healthy community and a country that has a moral core. I thought that was beautiful. Amazing. And God bless New Orleans for doing it. Kermit Ruffin, when I die, you better second line. <laughs> Is there anything more important than taking care of the poor? I think Jesus Christ would have said, 
that um, you might um, put other things aside. And New Orleans hasn't suffered enough. Yeah. Uh, Alva Johnson um, is suing um, Orange 45 because she expend, uh, experienced... You can read the uh, PDF online of her um, lawsuit against him. Quote, racial and gender discrimination. She also asserts that as a black woman, she was not paid um, as much as the other people on the campaign. She was on the the 45 campaign in 2016. She uh, was in an embrace with him, and he uh, took forward liberties with her and kissed her on the mouth, and she felt violated by that. Johnson's complaint comes just days after Jessica Denson, who worked on the campaign as a phone bank administrator and a Hispanic engagement director. She filed a class action claim seeking to invalidate non-disclosure, that's NDAs, and arbitration agreements signed by any Trump campaign workers. It's so important because then the floodgates open. This is the crux of the matter. He makes people sign NDAs because he does terrible things. he's guilty. And then he has people like Michael Cohen, um, who he had do all those things for him, and is absolutely uh, uh, testifying in front of Congress this week. Um, pay people off. Uh, on a note of hope, this is all being looked after. And and people are brave, like Alva Johnson. Yes, they Coming are. forward. There's nothing for it but to fight, to organize, to wake up, to educate yourself. And to show up and participate. Um, there's so much you can do. If people like Don Shirley and Jackie Shane can have the courage to stand up to the forces that be, then certainly we can find it in ourselves to kind uh, uh, to forge that metal together. Um, I wish you nothing but love. Um, may every page you turn be a satchel page. May every bell that rings for you be a cool bell. And if you have to buy bonds, make sure they're Barry Bonds, <laughs> Don Shirley. I I don't want to call him the trio because he no, didn't like don't it. Don't say trio. He didn't like it. Water Boy, nineteen sixty one.